Section 35 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1, Chapter 9. Of the Foundation and Progress of Scientific Chemistry in Great Britain. Part 4. No one contributed more largely to establish, to support, and to increase the high character of the medical school in the University of Edinburgh than Dr. Black. His talent for communicating knowledge was not less eminent than his faculty of observation. He soon became one of the principal ornaments of the university, and his lectures were attended by an audience which continued increasing from year to year for more than thirty years. His personal appearance and manners were those of a gentleman, and peculiarly pleasing. His voice in lecturing was low but fine, and his articulation so distinct that he was perfectly well heard by an audience consisting of several hundreds. While in Glasgow, he had practised extensively as a physician, but in Edinburgh he declined general practice, and confined his attendance to a few families of intimate and respected friends. He was, however, a physician of good repute in a place where the character of a physician implied no common degree of liberality, propriety, and dignity of manners as well as of learning and skill. Such was Dr. Black as a public man. While young, his countenance was comely and interesting, and as he advanced in years, it continued to preserve that pleasing expression of inward satisfaction which, by giving ease to the beholder, never fails to please. His manners were simple, unaffected, and graceful, he was of the most easy approach, affable, and readily entered into conversation, whether serious or trivial, for he was not merely a man of science, but was well acquainted with the elegant accomplishments. He had an accurate musical ear, and a voice which would obey it in the most perfect manner. He sang and performed on the flute with great taste and feeling, and could sing a plain air at sight which many instrumental performers cannot do. Music was his amusement in Glasgow. After his removal to Edinburgh, he gave it up entirely. Without having studied drawing, he had acquired a considerable power of expression with his pencil, both in figures and in landscape. He was peculiarly happy in expressing the passions, and seemed in this respect to half the talents of a historical painter. Figure, indeed, of every kind, attracted his attention, in architecture, furniture, ornament of every sort, it was never a matter of indifference to him. Even a retort or a crucible was to his eye an example of beauty or deformity. These are not indifferent things, they are features of an elegant mind, and they account for some part of that satisfaction and pleasure which persons of different habits and pursuits 
felt in Dr. Black's company and conversation. Those circumstances of form, and in which Dr. Black perceived or sought for beauty, were suitableness or propriety, something that rendered them well adapted for the purposes for which they were intended. This love for propriety constituted the leading feature in Dr. Black's mind. It was the standard to which he constantly appealed, and to which he endeavored to make the directing principle of his conduct. Dr. Black was fond of society, and felt himself beloved in it. His chief companions, in the earlier part of his residence in Edinburgh, were Dr. Adam Smith, Mr. David Hume, Dr. Adam Ferguson, Mr. John Holm, Dr. Alexander Carlyle, and a few others. Mr. Clark of Eldon and his brother Sir George, Dr. Roebuck, and Dr. James Hutton, particularly the latter, were affectionately attached to him, and in their society he could indulge in his professional studies. Dr. Hutton was the only person near him to whom Dr. Black imparted every speculation in chemical science, and who knew all his literary labors. Seldom were the two friends asunder for two days together. Towards the close of the 18th century, the infirmities of advanced life began to bear more heavily on his feeble constitution. Those hours of walking and gentle exercise, which had hitherto been necessary for his ease, were gradually curtailed. Company and conversation began to fatigue. He went less abroad, and was visited only by his intimate friends. His duty at college became too heavy for him, and he got an assistant, who took a share of the lectures, and relieved him from the fatigue of the experiments. The last course of lectures which he delivered was in the winter of 1796-7. to After this, even lecturing was too much for his diminished strength, and he was obliged to absent himself from the class altogether, but he still retained his usual affability of temper, and his habitual cheerness, and even to the very last was accustomed to walk out and take occasional exercise. As his strength declined, his constitution became more and more delicate. Every cold he caught occasioned to some degree of spitting of blood, yet he seemed to have this unfortunate disposition of body almost under command, so that he never allowed it to proceed far, or to occasion any distressing illness. He spun his thread of life to the very last fibre. He guarded against illness by restricting himself to an abstemious diet, and he met his increasing infirmities with a proportional increase of attention and care, regulating his food and exercise by the measure of his strength. Thus he made the most of a feeble constitution, by preventing the access of disease from abroad, and enjoyed a state of health which was feeble indeed, but scarcely interrupted, as well as a mind undisturbed in the calm and cheerful use of its faculties. His only apprehension was that of a long-continued sickbed, from the humane consideration of the trouble and distress that he might thus occasion to attending friends, and never was such generous wish more completely gratified 
than in his case. On the 10th of November, 1799, in the 71st year of his age, he expired without any convulsion, shock, or stupor, to announce or retard the approach of death. Being at table with his usual fare, some bread, a few prunes, and a measured quantity of milk, diluted with water, and having the cup in his hand when the last stroke of his pulse was to be given, he set it down on his knees, which were joined together, and kept it steady with his hand in the manner of a person perfectly at ease, and in this attitude expired without spilling a drop, and without a writhe in his countenance, as if an experiment had been required to show his friends the facility with which he departed. His servant opened the door to tell him that someone had left his name, but getting no answer, stepped about halfway to him, and seeing him sitting in that easy posture, supporting his basin of milk with one hand, he thought that he had dropped asleep, which was sometimes wont to happen after meals. He went back and shut the door, but before he got downstairs some anxiety, which he could not account for, made him return and look again at his master. Even then he was satisfied, after coming pretty near him, and turned to go away. But he again returned, and coming close up to him, he found him without life. His very near neighbor, Mr. Benjamin Bell, the surgeon, was immediately sent for, but nothing whatever could be done. Dr. Black's writhings are exceedingly few, consisting altogether of no more than three papers. The first, entitled, Experiments under Magnesia Alba, Quicklime, and Other Alkaline Substances, constituted the subject of his inaugural dissertation. It afterwards appeared in an English dress in one of the volumes of the Edinburgh Physical and Literary Essays, in the year 1755. Mr. Creech, the bookseller, published it in a separate pamphlet, together with Dr. Cullen's little essay on the cold produced by evaporating fluids, in the year 1796. This essay exhibits one of the very finest examples of inductive reasoning to be found in the English language. The author shows that magnesia is a peculiar earthy body, possessed of properties very different from lime. He gives the properties of lime in a pure state, and proves that it differs from limestone merely by the absence of the carbonic acid, which is a constituent of limestone. Limestone is a carbonate of lime. Quicklime is the pure uncombined earth. He shows that magnesia has also the property of combining with carbonic acid, that caustic potash, or soda, is merely these bodies in a pure or isolated state, while the mild alkalis are combinations of these bodies with carbonic acid. The reason why quicklime converts mild into caustic alkali is that the lime has a stronger affinity for the carbonic acid than the alkali. Hence the lime is converted into carbonate of lime, and the alkali, deprived of its carbonic acid, becomes caustic. 
Mild potash is a carbonate of potash. Caustic potash is a potash freed from carbonic acid. The publication of this essay occasioned a controversy in Germany, which was finally settled by Jacquin and Lavoisier, who repeated Dr. Black's experiments and showed them to be correct. Dr. Black's second paper was published in the Philosophical Transactions for 1775. It is entitled, The Supposed Effect of Boiling on Water, in Disposing it to Freeze More Readily, Ascertained by Experiments. He shows that when water that has been recently boiled is exposed to cold air, it begins to freeze as soon as it reaches the freezing point, while water that has not been boiled may be cooled some degrees below the freezing point before it begins to congeal. But if the unboiled water be constantly stirred during the whole time of its exposure, it begins to freeze when cooled down to the freezing point, as well as the other. He shows that the difference between the two waters consists in this, that the boiled water is constantly absorbing air, which disturbs it, whereas the other water remains in a state of rest. His last paper was, an analysis of the water of some boiling springs in Iceland, published in the Transactions of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. This was the water of the geyser spring, brought from Iceland by Sir J. Stanley. Dr. Black found it to contain a great deal of silica, held in solution in the water by caustic soda. The tempting career which Dr. Black opened and which he was unable to prosecute for want of health, soon attracted the attention of one of the ablest men that Great Britain has produced. I mean Mr. Cavendish. The Honorable Henry Cavendish was born in London on the 10th of October, 1731. His father was Lord Charles Cavendish, a cadet of the House of Devonshire, one of the oldest families in England. During his father's lifetime he was kept in rather narrow circumstances, being allowed an annuity of five hundred pounds only, while his apartments were a set of stables, fitted up for his accommodation. It was during this period that he acquired those habits of economy, and those singular oddities of character, which he exhibited ever after in so striking a manner. At his father's death he was left a very considerable fortune, and an aunt who died at a later period bequeathed him a very handsome addition to it. But in consequence of the habits of economy which he had acquired, it was not in his power to spend the greater part of his annual income. This occasioned a yearly increase to his capital, till at last it accumulated so much, without any care on his part, that at the period of his death he left behind him nearly one million three hundred thousand pounds, and he was at that time the greatest proprietor of stock in the Bank of England. On one occasion, the money in the hands of his bankers had accumulated to the amount of seventy thousand pounds. These gentlemen thinking it improper to keep so large a sum in their hands, sent one of the partners to wait upon him, in order to learn how he desired it disposed of. 
this gentleman was admitted, and after employing the necessary precautions to a man of Mr. Cavendish's peculiar disposition, stated the circumstance, and begged to know whether it would not be proper to lay out the money at interest. Mr. Cavendish dryly answered, You may lay it out if you please, and left the room. He hardly ever went into any other society than that of his scientific friends. He never was absent from the weekly dinner of the Royal Society Club at the Crown and Anchor Tavern in the Strand. At these dinners, when he happened to be seated near those that he liked, he often conversed a great deal, though at other times he was very silent. He was likewise a constant attendant at Sir Joseph Banks' Sunday evening meetings. He had a house in London, which he only visited once or twice a week at stated times, and without ever speaking to the servants. It contained an excellent library, to which he gave all literary men the freest and most unrestrained access. But he lived in a house on Clapham Common, where he scarcely ever received any visitors. His relation, Lord George Cavendish, to whom he left by will the greatest part of his fortune, visited him only once a year, and the visit hardly ever exceeded ten or twelve minutes. He was shy and bashful to a degree bordering on disease. He could not bear to have any person introduced to him, or to be pointed out in any way as a remarkable man. One Sunday evening he was standing at Sir Joseph Banks in a crowded room, conversing with Mr. Hatchett, when Dr. Ingenhouse, who had a great deal of pomposity of manner, came up with an Austrian gentleman in his hand, and introduced him formally to Mr. Cavendish. He mentioned the titles and qualifications of his friend at great length, and said that he had been peculiarly anxious to be introduced to a philosopher so profound and so universally known and celebrated as Mr. Cavendish. As soon as Dr. Ingenhouse had finished, the Austrian gentleman began, and assured Mr. Cavendish that his principal reason for coming to London was to see and converse with one of the greatest ornaments of the age, and one of the most illustrious philosophers that ever existed. To all these high-flown speeches, Mr. Cavendish answered not a word, but stood with his eyes cast down quite abashed and confounded. At last, spying an opening in the crowd, he darted through it with all the speed of which he could master, nor did he stop till he reached his carriage, which drove him directly home. Of a man, whose habits were so retired, and whose intercourse with society was so small, there is nothing else to relate except his scientific labors. The current of his life passed on with the utmost regularity. The description of a single day would convey a correct idea of his whole existence. At one time, he was in the habit of keeping an individual to assist him in his experiments. This place was for some time filled by Sir Charles Blagden, but they did not agree well together, and after some time Sir Charles left him. Mr. Cavendish died on the 4th of February, 1810, 
aged seventy-eight years, four months, and six days. When he found himself dying, he gave directions to his servant to leave him alone, and not to return till a certain time which he specified, and by which period he expected to be no longer alive. The servant, however, who was aware of the state of his master, and was anxious about him, opened the door of the room before the time specified, and approached the bed to take a look at the dying man. Mr. Cavendish, who was still sensible, was offended at the intrusion, and ordered him out of the room with a voice of displeasure, commanding him not by any means to return till the time specified. When he did come back at that time, he found his master dead. What a contrast between the characters of Mr. Cavendish and Dr. Black. End of section 35